0: PART ONE, CHAPTER FIVE OF THE DEAD LETTER BY META VICTORIA FULLER VICTOR. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. MR. BURTON, THE DETECTIVE. When I came out of the office, I encountered James on the steps for the first time that day. I could not stop to make known the robbery to him, and telling him that his uncle wished to see him a few minutes, I hurried to my boarding-house, where I had barely time to take some lunch in my room while packing a small bag to be sent to the cars, before hurrying back to Mr. Argyle's to attend the funeral escort to the train. James and I were two of the 8 pallbearers. yet neither of us could summon fortitude to enter the parlour where the body lay. I believe that James had not yet looked upon the corpse. We stood outside on the steps of the piazza, only taking our share of the burden after the coffin was brought out into the yard. While we stood there, among many others, waiting, I chanced to observe his paleness and restlessness. He tore his black gloves in putting them on. I saw his fingers trembling. As for me, my whole being seemed to pause as a single, prolonged shriek rung out of the darkened mansion and floated off on the sunshine up to the ear of God. They were taking the lover away from his bride. The next moment the coffin appeared. I took my place by its side and we moved away toward the depot passing over the very spot where the corpse was found james was a step in advance of me and as we came to the place some strong inward recoil made him pause then step aside and walk around the ill-starred spot i noticed it not only for the momentary confusion into which it threw the line but because i had never supposed him susceptible to superstitious or imaginative influences a private car had been arranged for james and i occupied one seat the swift motion of the train was opposed to the idea of death it had an exhilarating effect upon my companion whose paleness passed away and who began to experience a reaction after his depression of feeling he talked to me incessantly upon trifling subjects which i do not now recall and in that low yet sharp voice which is most easily distinguished through the clatter of a moving train the necessity for attending to him for making answers to irrelevant questions when my mind was preoccupied, annoyed me. My thoughts centered about the coffin and its inmate, taking his last ride under circumstances so different from those under which he had set out, only two days ago, to meet her whom his heart adored, whose hand he never clasped, whose lips he never touched, the fruition of whose hopes was cut off utterly, whose fate henceforth was among the mysterious paths of the great eternity. I could not for an instant feel the least lightness of heart, My nature was too sympathetic, the currents of my young blood flowed too warmly, for me to feel otherwise than deeply affected by the catastrophe. My eyes shed inward tears at the sight of the parents, sitting in advance of us, their heads bowed beneath the stroke, and, oh, my heart shed tears of blood at thought of Eleanor left behind us to the utter darkness of a night which had fallen while it was yet morning. Musing upon her, I wondered that her cousin James could throw off the troubles of others as he did, interesting himself in passing trifles. I have said that I never liked him much, but in this I was an exception to the general rule. He was an almost universal favourite. At least he seldom failed to please and win those for whom he exerted himself to be agreeable. His voice was soft and well modulated. Such a voice as, should one hear it from another apartment, would make him wish to see the speaker, His manner was gracious and flattering. I had often wondered why his evident passion for Eleanor had not secured her interest in return, before she knew Henry Moreland, and had answered myself that it was one of two reasons. Either their cousinly intercourse had invested him, to her, with the feelings of a brother or relative, or her fine perceptions, being the superior woman which she was, had unconsciously led her to a true estimate of his qualities. This day I felt less affinity for him than ever before, as I gazed at his dark, thin features, and met the light of eyes brilliant, unsteady, and cold. That intense selfishness which I had secretly attributed to him was now, to my perhaps too acute apprehension, painfully apparent. In my secret heart, as I listened to his light remarks, and perceived the rise of spirits which he hardly endeavoured to check, I accused him of gladness that a rival was out of the way, and that the chances were again open for the hand of his beautiful and wealthy cousin. At first he had been shocked, as we all were, but now that he had time to view the occurrence with an eye to the future, I believed that he was already calculating the results with regard to his own hopes and wishes. I turned from him with a feeling of aversion. After neglecting to reply to him until he was obliged to drop the one-sided conversation, I recollected that I had not yet spoken to him in regard to his uncle's loss, "'So I said to him quite suddenly, "'Mr. Argyle has been robbed of a sum of money.' "'An inexplicable expression flashed into his face and passed off. "'It went as soon as it came. "'So he informed me just before we started. "'He says that you will put the police on the track of it, "'that possibly the $500 bill will be identified. "'It was taken from his desk, it appears. "'Yes, I wonder what will happen next. "'Aye, I wonder what will.' who knows what a narrow escape you may have had said i it is well that you came here in broad daylight else like poor henry you might have fallen a victim to a blow in the dark mr argyll thinks you must have been followed from the city by some professional burglar he thinks so he asked while the shadow of a smile just showed a second in the mirror of his eyes it was as if there was a smile in his heart and a reflection from its invisible self fell athwart his eyes but he turned them away immediately it's queer he resumed horribly queer don't you think so i saw that money in the desk friday evening uncle asked me to hold the lamp for a moment while he found some papers and i noticed the roll of bills lying in his cash drawer just as i had given them to him it must have been abstracted saturday or sunday it's queer confoundedly so there must be some great villain lurking in our midst this last sentence he uttered with an emphasis looking me through with his black eyes there was suspicion in his gaze, and my own fell before it. Innocence itself will blush, if obliged to confront the insult of accusation. I had had many wild and doubtless many wrong and suspicious thoughts about various persons since the discovery of the murder, and this was turning the tables on me rather suddenly. It never occurred to me that among the dozens upon whom vague and flying suspicions might alight might be myself. There, There is an awful mystery somewhere, I stammered yes there is my uncle argyle is just the man to be wronged by some one of his many friends and dependents he is too confiding too unsuspecting of others as i have told him he has been duped often but this this is too bad i looked up again and sharply to see what he meant if he intended covertly to insinuate that i was open to imputation as one of the friends or dependents who could wrong a benefactor i wished to understand him a friend i knew mr argyle was to me a friend to be grateful for but i was no dependent upon his bounty as his nephew was and the hot blood rushed to my face the fire to my eye as i answered back the cool gaze of james with a haughty stare there is no love lost between us richard he said presently which is principally your fault but i am friendly to you and as a friend i would suggest that you do not make yourself conspicuous in this affair if you should put yourself forward at all Being so young and having apparently so small an interest in the matter, you may bring unpleasant remark upon yourself. Let us stand back and allow our elders to do the work. As to that money, well, whether it has or has not any connection with uh, the other affair, time will perhaps show. Let the police do what they can with it. My advice to you is to keep in the background. Your course may be prudent, James, was my reply. I do not ask your approbation of mine, but to one thing I have made up my mind so long as i live and the murderer of henry morland is undiscovered i will never rest in eleanor's name i consecrate myself to this calling i can face the whole world in her behalf and fear nothing he turned away with a sneer busying himself with the prospect from the window during the rest of the ride we said little his words had given me a curious sensation i had sustained so many shocks to my feelings within the last forty-eight hours that this new one of finding myself under the eye of suspicion mingled in with the perplexing whirl of the whole until i almost began to doubt my own identity and that of the others a vision of leesy sullivan whose wild footsteps might still be tracking hills and fields hovered before me and out of all this distraction my thoughts settled upon eleanor i prayed god earnestly to be with her in this hour either to strengthen her heart and brain to bear her affliction without falling to ruins beneath the weight or to take her at once to himself where henry awaited her in the mansions of their eternal home the arrival of the train at thirtieth street recalled me to my present duties carriages were in waiting to convey the coffin and its escort to the house of the parents the funeral being arranged for the following day i saw the officer who had gone down from blankville in the morning waiting in the depot to speak to me but i did not need to be told that he had not found the sewing-girl at her place of business I made an appointment to meet him in the evening at the Metropolitan, and took my place in the sad procession to the House of the Morelands. I was anxious to give notice of the robbery at the bank, and to ascertain if they could identify any of the money, especially the large bill, which, being new, I hoped they would have on record. Banking hours were over, however, for the day, and it was only by intruding the matter upon the notice of Mr. Moreland that I could get anything accomplished. This I decided to do, when he told me that, by going directly to the bank, he thought I could gain access to the cashier, and if not he gave me his address, so that I might seek him at his residence. Mr. Morland also advised me to take with me some competent detective, who should be witness to the statement of the cashier with regard to the money paid to James Argyle on his uncle's draft, and be employed to put the rest of the force on the lookout for it, or any portion of it which was identifiable." he gave me the name of an officer with whom he had a chance acquaintance and of whose abilities he had a high opinion telling me to make free use of his name and influence if he had any with him and the police and please mr redfield or james here if you should be too busy make out an advertisement for the morning papers offering a reward of five thousand dollars for the detection and conviction of the-the murderer james was standing by us during the conversation and I almost withdrew my verdict upon his selfishness, as I marked how he shrunk when the eye of the bereaved father rested upon him, and how vainly he endeavoured to appear calm at the affecting spectacle of the grey-haired gentleman forcing his quivering lips to utter the word murderer. He trembled much more than myself, as each of us wrung Mr. Morland's hand and departed down the steps. "'It unmanned him,' he said. "'stopping a moment on the pavement "'to wipe the perspiration from his brow, "'though the day was not at all warm. "'I believe,' he added as he walked along, "'that if the person who resolves to commit a crime "'would reflect on all the consequences of that act, "'it would remain undone for ever. "'But he does not. "'He sees an object in the way of his wishes, "'and he thrusts it aside, "'reckless of the ruin which will overwhelm surrounding things, "'until he sees the wreck about him. "'Then it is too late for remorse,' to the devil with it but i needn't philosophize before you richard who have precociously earned that privilege of wisdom with that disagreeable half laugh of his only i was thinking how the guilty party must have felt could he have seen henry's father as we saw him just now and again i felt his eye upon me certainly there seemed no prospect of our friendship increasing i would rather have dispensed with his company while i put my full energies into the business before me but it was quite natural that he should expect to accompany me on an errand in which he must have as deep an interest as myself coming out of the avenue upon broadway we took a stage riding down as far as grand street when we got out and walked to the office of the detective police the chief was not in at the moment of our entrance we were received by a subordinate and questioned as to our visit the morning papers had heralded the melancholy and mysterious murder through the city Hundreds of thousands of persons had already marvelled over the boldness and success, the silence and suddenness with which the deed had been done, leaving not a clue by which to trace the perpetrator. It had been the sensation of the day throughout New York and its environs. The public mind was busy with conjectures as to the motive for the crime, and this was to be one of the sharp thorns pressed into the hearts of the distressed friends of the murdered man. Suddenly, into the garish light of day beneath the pitiless gaze of a million curious eyes was dragged every word or act or circumstance of the life so abruptly closed it was necessary to the investigation of the affair that the most secret pages of his history should be read out and it is not in the nature of a daily paper to neglect such opportunities for turning an honest penny here let me say that not one character in ten thousand could have stood this trial by fire as did henry morland's no wronged hireling, no open enemy, no secret intrigue, no gambling debts, not one blot on the bright record of his amiable Christian life. To return to the detective office, our errand at once received attention from the person in charge, who sent a messenger after the chief. He also informed us that several of their best men had gone up to Blankville that afternoon to confer with the authorities there. The public welfare demanded, as well as the interest of private individuals, that the guilty should be ferreted out if possible. The apparent impunity with which the crime had been committed was startling, making everyone feel it a personal matter to aid in discouraging any more such practices. Besides, the police knew that their efforts would be well rewarded. While we sat talking with the official, I noticed the only other inmate of the room, who made a peculiar impression upon me for which I could not account. He was a large man of middle age, with a florid face and sandy hair. He was quietly dressed in the ordinary manner of the season, and with nothing to mark him from a thousand other men of similar appearance, unless it was the expression of his small blue-gray eyes, whose glance, when I happened to encounter it, seemed not to be looking at me, but into me. However, he turned it away, and occupied himself with looking through the window at the passers-by. He appeared to be a stranger awaiting, like ourselves, the coming of the chief. Desiring to secure the services of the particular detective whom Mr. Moreland had recommended, I asked the subordinate in attendance if he could inform me where Mr. Burton was to be found. "'Burton? I don't know of any one of that name, I think. If I may accept my stage experience with Mr. Toodles, he added, with a smile, called up by some passing vision of his last visit to the theatre. "'Then there is no Mr. Burton belongs to your force?' not that i'm acquainted with he may be one of us for all that we don't pretend to know our own brothers here you can ask mr brown when he comes in all this time the stranger by the window sat motionless absorbed in looking upon the throng of persons and vehicles in the street beneath and now i having nothing else to do regarded him i felt a magnetism emanate from him as from a manufactory of vital forces i felt instinctively that he was possessed of an iron will and indomitable courage. I was speculating, according to my dreamy habit, upon his characteristics when the chief appeared, and we, that is, James and myself, laid our case before him. At the same time I mentioned that Mr. Morland had desired me to ask for Mr. Burton to be detailed to aid our investigations. "'Ah, yes,' said Mr. Brown, "'there are not many outsiders who know that person. He is my right hand. But I don't let the left know what he doeth.' mr morland had his services once i remember in tracking some burglars who had entered his banking house poor young morland i've seen him often shocking affair truly we mustn't rest till we know more about it i only hope we may be of service to his afflicted father burton is just here fortunately and he beckoned to the very stranger sitting in the window who had overheard the inquiries made for him without the slightest demonstration that such a being had any existence as far as he was concerned and who now slowly arose and approached us we four went into an inner room where we were introduced to each other and drawing up our chairs in a close circle we began in low voices the discussion of our business mr brown was voluble when he heard that a robbery had been committed in mr argyll's house he had no doubt he said that the two crimes were connected and it would be strange indeed if nothing could be discovered relating to either of them he hoped that the lesser crime would be the means of betraying the greater. He trusted the rogue, whoever he or she might be, had, in this imprudent act, done something to betray himself. He had hopes of the five-hundred-dollar bill. Mr. Burton said very little, beyond asking two or three questions, but he was a good listener. Most of the time he sat with his eyes fixed upon James, who did a good deal of the talking. I could not, for the life of me, tell whether James was conscious of those blue-gray eyes. If he was, they did not much disturb him. He made his statements in a calm and lucid manner, gazing into Mr. Burton's face with a clear and open look. After a while the latter began to grow uneasy. Powerful as was his physical and mental frame, I saw a trembling of both. He forced himself to remain quiet in his chair, but to me he had the air of a lion who sees its prey but a little distance off and who trembles with restraint the light in his eye narrowed down to one gleam of concentrated fire a steely glittering point he watched the rest of us and said little if i had been a guilty man i should have shrunk from that observation through the very walls or out of a five-story window if there had been no other way it struck me that it would have been unbearable to any accusing conscience but my own mind being burdened with no weightier sins than a few boyish follies, saving the selfishness and earthliness which make a part of all human natures, I felt quite free, breathing easily, while I noticed with interest the silent change going on in the detective. More and more like a lion about to spring he grew, but whether his prey was near at hand and visible, or far away and visible only to his mental gaze, I could not tell. I fairly jumped, when he at last rose quickly to his feet i expected to see him bound upon some guilty ghost to us intangible and shake it to pieces in an honest rage but whatever was the passion within him he controlled it saying only a little impatiently enough gentlemen we have talked enough brown will you go with mr argyll to the bank and see about that money i do not wish to be known there as belonging to your force i will walk to his hotel with mr redfield and you can meet us there at any hour you choose to appoint it will take until tea-time to attend to the bank say about eight o'clock then we will be at the metropolitan said i and the quartet parted half going up and half going downtown. on our way to the hotel we fell into an easy conversation on topics entirely removed from the one which absorbed the gravest thoughts of both mr burton did more talking now than he had done at the office perhaps with the object of making me express myself freely though if so he managed with so much tact that his wish was not apparent. He had but poor success. The calamity of our house lay too heavily on me for me to forget it in an instant. But I was constantly surprised at the character of the man whose acquaintance I was making. He was intelligent, even educated, a gentleman in language and manner, a quite different person, in fact, from what I had expected in a member of the detective police. End of Part 1, Chapter 5, Part 1